It's not the bee's knees. No, it's the Sustainable Futures Report. Hello and welcome to this edition for Friday the 17th of July. I'm Anthony Day. Let me start with the news that Rachel Morris has become the latest patron and silver supporter of the Sustainable Futures Report. Welcome, Rachel. More about being a patron later. It's another week of odds and ends. It's Bees Needs Week. There's an apology for a campaigner for the climate hoax. Buy his book and learn more. It's the sun, stupid, not CO2. Alternatives to plastic, to food and to economic growth. Green recovery or environmental endgame. And finally, why the horrible hated fossil fuel industry could be crucial to a clean energy transition. But first, this is what I think. Apart from my wonderful patrons who support the Sustainable Futures Report every month, this podcast is brought to you without advertising, subsidy or sponsorship. That means I can say exactly what I think. Agree or disagree, I always welcome your feedback. But be aware that I shall treat anything you share with me as being in the public domain unless you specifically advise me otherwise. My view is that there is a climate crisis demanding urgent action, which is being largely overlooked by world governments who are paying lip service to the problem and certainly taking some actions, but not nearly enough. On the other hand, there are those, and there are many of them, who claim we've got it all wrong and are wasting time and money fruitlessly. I don't cover their views to any great extent in the Sustainable Futures Report, Is that because I'm as biased and bigoted as they are, just in the opposite direction? I hope not. My guiding light is the precautionary principle. If there's a strong body of evidence which suggests that there's a high probability that something nasty could happen, I think it's a good idea to take precautions. For example, I won't be going out to the pub anytime soon, with or without a face mask. And I'd like to draw your attention to a YouTube video called The Most Terrifying Video You'll Ever See. This has been around since 2007, and you may well be one of the millions of people who have already seen it. It quite simply looks at four possibilities based on two assumptions which nobody can argue with. First assumption, there will either be, or there will not be, a climate crisis. Happy with that? Second assumption, we will either take action or we will take no action. Can't argue with that. That leads to four scenarios. No action, no crisis. We all live happily ever after. Crisis is real, but we've taken action. Everyone is safe. Crisis is real, but we've taken no action. Disaster for all. And finally, we've taken action, but there's no crisis. That one reminds me of a cartoon I once saw of an apoplectic gentleman shouting, What do you mean, no crisis? We've spent all this money and all we've got is a better world. My view is that the risk of not acting is just not worth taking. Reminds me of another cartoon where a businessman is addressing a board meeting. Undoubtedly, gentlemen, £50 trillion is a great deal of money. 
But you have to recognise that it's not real money and it's not ours. Seriously, though, the vast deficit budgeting undertaken by governments in the present crisis demonstrates that money can be created when the need is great enough and that markets have the confidence to advance that money. And what about the naysayers? I think my time could be better used by keeping you informed of what is being done to mitigate or adapt to the climate crisis and what is being done to concentrate the minds of governments and to, and to demand action. Having said that, listener Ian Jarvis, why not become a patron, Ian? Draws my attention to two articles. The first is by Michael Schellenberger, who has been an environmental activist for some 30 years, but now feels an obligation to apologise for how badly we environmentalists have misled the public. He'd also like you to buy his book. I shared his article with Dave Borless. You may remember that I mentioned Dave before. He does a weekly video on climate, sustainability and related issues. Each is an in-depth analysis of a particular topic, unlike the Sustainable Futures Report, which generally contains five or six or more stories. Anyway, he came back with a very balanced response to the article. You'll find that and a link to the original article on the blog, which, as always, is at www.sustainablefutures.report. Ian also shared an article from Nexus magazine. That's also linked on the blog, but I'm afraid it'll cost you $1.50 to download. The thesis of author Jamal S. Schreer is that climate change is nothing to do with CO2. It's all caused by the motion of the sun in relation to the centre of the galaxy. He tells us that due to the fundamental defects in the current laws of physics, the most important facts about our own star and planet are not understood. Thus, one should not be surprised that climate science is ruled by corrupt politicians and power-hungry individuals. Make no mistake about it, the sun is misunderstood not only with regard to the process responsible for its primary energy source, but also with regard to its motion and relationship with our planet. I'm afraid I stopped reading shortly after that. I'd prefer to devote my time to taking precautions against the climate crisis rather than assess the credibility of those arguing against an overwhelming scientific consensus. You can read it if you want. The link is there. Examine the sources, including the Telegraph, which he cites to back up his conclusions. You may come to agree that revealing the truth about the sun is the most powerful blow that can be delivered to the global corruption, fake and anti-science trends. Furthermore, and more importantly, the exploration of the cosmos and the opening of the gate of heaven cannot be realised without knowing the physical reality of our star. Meanwhile, back on Earth, in an article on Medium.com, Sam Westreich, PhD, warns against compostable plastics. He says that it's a nice idea, but not one that really works in practice. The problem is that such plastics are made from different materials, so they cannot be recycled with other petroleum-based plastics. They're typically separated out at plastics recycling plants and sent off to landfill. In landfill, there is not the air, the water or the heat to develop the composting process. So they just lie there indefinitely. 
Back garden compost heaps may provide water and air, but they rarely reach the temperatures required to break down these plastics. West Reich recommends using glass or aluminium instead, both materials that can be recycled and reused. Every little helps is a refrain we frequently hear. Many people are doing small but important things to reduce our impact on the planet, like Bristol food producers, brought to my attention by silver support Amanda Scott. It's a federation of farms and small-scale food producers who work together towards the objectives of increasing productive land, improving fairness and efficiencies for smaller food producers, improving access to markets, collaboration on learning. Similar initiatives are being planned for other areas. This sort of activity is vital and deserves our support. Every little helps. But every little is by no means enough. It is only governments which can take measures sufficient to deal with the climate crisis. We must never lose sight of the big picture or fail to continue to hold the government to account. There are increasing questions about the role of growth as society's overriding objective. If you read The Spirit Level by Wilkinson and Pickett, you will learn that it is not wealth that determines happiness and satisfaction with life. It's the level of inequality. The hyper-rich have become even richer in the last 30 years. When we are urged to go out and buy things to get our lockdown economy going again, things which we haven't needed for the last three months, pause and consider whether we are doing this for ourselves or for the sake of the corporations and their owners. Should we look at reorganising society? Amanda Scott also shared a link to How on Earth? Flourishing in a Not-for-Profit World by 2050 by Hinton and McClurkin. This book, they say, presents both a critique of the current economic system and a vision for a more sustainable economy, one that serves people and planet. Their vision of reorganising society champions the not-for-profit organisation and they say, the decisions we make and the ways we choose to direct our energy can profoundly influence the formation of a future that would truly sustain us. How we will shape the post-capitalist world is up to all of us. So don't buy what you don't need, and ideally buy it from a co-op or a charity shop. Although the theme of the UK's post-lockdown recovery plan has been summarised by the Prime Minister as build, 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 some are taking a more nuanced approach. A report from UK 100, a network of of over a hundred mayors and local leaders from across the country, urges the Chancellor to spend not two billion, but five billion on energy saving measures as part of a green recovery. UK 100's director, Polly Billington said, if ministers are to meet their manifesto promise on energy efficiency in our homes, which are some of the leakiest in Europe, they need to kickstart a renewable revolution. This would help hard-pressed consumers save on their fuel bills, support hundreds of thousands of jobs and protect the environment. £5 billion now would unlock £100 billion to rescue the UK economy and deliver on the Prime Minister's ambitions of levelling up 
and meeting net zero. The Chancellor's statement, while welcome, should have had far more front-loaded investment. I believe there will be yet another financial statement in the autumn, so maybe the Chancellor will address it then. Before that, one of my contacts has a meeting with Bayes next week. That's B-E-I-S, which is the Department of Business, Energy, Industry and something else. But you know what I mean. Anyway, he has a meeting with this ministry next week to find out the exact scope and regulations of the new scheme for insulating homes. I'll keep you posted. UK 100 claims that the move could create 300,000 jobs. But to avoid costly mistakes, that workforce will need to be trained. Installation is no longer just about lagging the loft and filling the cavity walls. Most of that should have been done by now. Although some say that cavity wall insulation is a mistake, but that's another story. <clears throat> Retrofit insulation involves filling underfloor voids and fixing insulation panels to internal walls. It needs to be done in the right way, with the right materials to avoid creating cold bridges or fire traps. Training and accreditation of installers and supervisors is key. We'll also need to train skilled tradesmen across the country to replace gas boilers with heat pumps. Meanwhile, Roger Hallam, a leader of Extinction Rebellion, has published a video entitled Pivoting to the Endgame. Few people will watch a one-hour, 20-minute video, so I'll attempt to summarise the main points, which I believe are very important. He also feeds in the throwaway line that he expects global warming to reach 5 degrees centigrade and that extinction is therefore assured. It's worth rereading Six Degrees by Mark Linus, who looks at the scenarios for each degree and predicts the worsening consequences. Five degrees is pretty bad. Roger Hallam tells us that while the climate crisis is clearly an extreme risk, very few people take it seriously because it is perceived as remote. Humans assess risk depending on how close it is to them in time or space. For example, if a thousand people die in China tomorrow, it will probably make a footnote on the news. If a thousand people die in Italy tomorrow, many more people will hear about it. If a thousand people die in the UK, it'll make the front page for days. If a thousand people die in your town tomorrow, you will be talking about it and probably be traumatised it for months and years to come. In all cases, the size of the tragedy, a thousand deaths, is the same. Humans also have a herd instinct. It's the safety in numbers principle. Nobody really wants to step out of line. Some groups will form at the extremes, like Extinction Rebellion, although even then, not at the extreme that will cause effective change. Extinction Rebellion, in any case, has a middle-class problem. The honest and dedicated supporters believe earnestly in the movement's objectives, but they won't act because they fear for their reputation, their mortgage, their jobs and their family responsibilities. In any case, history shows that fundamental societal change, or revolution if you like, does not happen unless everyone sees and accepts the dangers of not changing, and there is a triggering event. 
The herd instinct pushes people back towards the postmodern truth which the majority accepts. Institutional inertia means that, for example, King's College supported Roger Hallam's hunger strike, but nobody actually joined his action. Nobody wants to be seen as abnormal, which is why both the Labour Party and the Green Party have softened their policies on the climate back towards the popular truth. No matter that that truth isn't actually true. The First World War provided the disruption which led to the Russian Revolution. The reformers, who had been calling for change for decades, took over but were rapidly replaced by the extremist Bolsheviks bringing violently radical change. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed, a similar scenario played out. The reformers tried to set up socialism with a human face, but were overthrown by extreme capitalists. Roger suggests that when the climate crisis comes and the UK state collapses, the Green Party will take over, but will itself be displaced by radicals and extremists who could come from right or left. What will bring this collapse about? The trigger will be a disaster, which could be another financial collapse or maybe an environmental crisis. It needs leadership. Given the right conditions, a prophetic leader can change the views of a herd diametrically, and once they have changed to follow him or her, everyone will stay in the fold. Where do we go from here? It seems to me that Roger is suggesting that nothing can be done until some type of catastrophe concentrates the minds of the whole population. That seems to be counsel for sitting and doing nothing. Extinction Rebellion nevertheless has a big event planned for the 1st of September and has also launched a new political party to very mixed reviews. More about those in a future episode. By the way, Boris Johnson thinks Extinction Rebellion should dedicate its 1st of September event to celebrating all the amazing things that the government is doing to tackle climate change. There's a link to a short video where he's saying that on the blog. It wouldn't be the Sustainable Futures Report without some comment on energy. Here are some points following up last week's interview with James Spencer. I first met him when he made a presentation in 2013. He said then that only fossil fuel companies had the scale and understanding to deal with global energy requirements and that paradoxically they would therefore become the world's major green players. We can't deny that for the moment every single one of us uses the products of the fossil fuel industry every day. That must change, but a renewable energy infrastructure will have to be every bit as extensive as the existing energy infrastructure, so it maybe makes sense to convert it rather than attempt to replace it from scratch. On the blog you'll find a link to a McKinsey interview with Martin Newbert of Orsted. Twelve years ago, this Danish energy company made most of its money from fossil fuels. It still trades gas, but today it's the world's leading offshore wind power producer. Germany's biggest polluter, RWE, is North America's second largest renewables player. BP continues to be the world's largest solar power supplier. Clearly, there's a transition in progress. We need governments to speed it up by introducing taxes on carbon 
and regulations which mean that corporations who are moving towards net zero are not undercut by competitors who take a less responsible attitude to the environment. And finally, it's the bees' needs. No, the bees' needs. It's bees' needs week. Apparently, this is the fifth year of the event, but I'm sorry to say that as a beekeeper, the other four years have passed me by. The idea, an initiative of DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, is to raise public awareness of the importance of bees and of other pollinators for that matter. While cereal grains are pollinated by the wind, most fruit is pollinated by insects. Pollination is by far the most important value created by honeybees. It far exceeds the value of the honey. Pollination is estimated to be worth £500 million in the UK alone. So what should you do to help the bees? Well, first of all, if you have a garden, you should grow more flowers, shrubs and trees. Apart from that, just let it go wild. And whatever you do, don't mow the lawn too often. That's my kind of gardening. Seriously, though, we beekeepers could do with your help in bridging the June gap. You'll have to remember that for next year. What happens is that the bees start the year with the spring flowers, raising brood and expanding their colonies. Come June, most of the spring flowers are over and many of the summer flowers have not come into blossom. Bees have been known to starve in June or to abandon larvae which they cannot feed. If you can plant flowers which bloom in June, you'll be doing us and the bees a great service. And that's it for this week. I mentioned at the start that Rachel Morris is our latest patron and silver supporter. Support from her and her fellow patrons helps me cover the cost of hosting, of the website, which is coming very soon, and for having interviews transcribed. Patronage starts at a dollar a month, and all contributions are most welcome. If you have any thoughts, ideas or suggestions, I'm always keen to hear, and you're sure to get a reply, even if you're not a patron. Patrons get priority, of course. You'll find the details of becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash sfr. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm thinking about next week's episode already. Thank you.